0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and for those of you who are using the Bibles provided, that's page 961. Page 961, and we'll look at 1 Corinthians 15. And allow me to read for us verses 12 through 19. Follow along in your own Bibles. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ burst onto the scene in 2004, making a mind-blowing $612 million worldwide on a $30 million production budget. Now, up until last year, this was the highest-grossing rated R movie of all time. It's really surprising that it did this well at the box office because Gibson's intention, according to his own words, were to simply to create a tiny budget film where he would preach the gospel to a few Christians. Now, despite its financial success, I think you all know that it's been one of the most controversial movies ever made, both in the Christian and non-Christian world. Some loved it, others hated it. For those of you who are anticipating that I will condemn or condone the movie this morning, don't get your hopes up. I simply want to make an observation that I think reveals something larger about each of us who claim to be Christians in the room this morning. Here it is Of the 120 plus minutes in the movie, only a minute and a half of it is devoted to the resurrection. So Gibson says he's going to preach the gospel. He gives it over two hours, and the resurrection gets 90 seconds. It's kind of a fitting parable for how most people understand the gospel, isn't it? There's a tendency to focus on the resurrection of Jesus almost as an afterthought, a P.S. to the love letter of Jesus' person and work on this earth. Now I know that I can't speak for all of you that are here today, but I think that this is really true of many. I mean, just consider something as simple as the Christian calendar. How much time do you spend preparing for Christmas as opposed to preparing for Easter? For many Christians, this Minimization of the resurrection is even revealed back to the way that you explain the gospel or the way that you were taught to explain the gospel. Some of you learned growing up in Sunday school the Romans road or the four spiritual laws or the ABCs of salvation to help you teach other people the truth about Jesus. I don't know if you've ever noticed those things before. When you look at them carefully, They hardly spend any time at all explaining the significance of the resurrection. Pretty much what Christians will say to people is, look, the penalty for sin is death. You've sinned. Jesus paid that penalty by doing what? Dying. So if he died, the penalty's paid. Everything's good, right? What's the point of the resurrection? Why do we need that? Now look, if you're here today and you're visiting, I don't assume that you know these things. We're glad you're here. But don't ask. I mean, just think with me, like, why did you show up on this day? You know, you don't go every day, but most people have this, like, draw to come to church on Easter. There's something special about it. Maybe it was because your, your family always went, or maybe it was because you just grew up, and this is just, like, the habit, or maybe you know that this is just a good day to come to church. But why is this day a good day? If it was your family that wanted you to go, why did they want you to come on this particular day and not some other day? Why so much time and energy and focus to this holiday? Are you curious at all (laughs) about what this resurrection thing is about? Why we as Christians do this every Sunday? What's the big deal about the resurrection? Paul, the guy who wrote 1 Corinthians he was deeply concerned about this very topic, which is interesting because he's dealing with a church that's got a lot of problems. Whether you're here today and you're familiar with church or not as familiar with church, you need to understand like, when I talk about a church that has problems, this church had problems, big problems. There were people in the church who were suing one another because they were so angry at one another. There were people in this church, or there was a man in this church in particular who was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother, and the people in the church were celebrating that. Not only that, but on top of that, there were men in the church who were actually visiting temple prostitutes and claiming to be Christians at the same time. There were people who would not talk to one another and had separated from one another because they liked one preacher more than the other. So when I talk about problems, I mean, we've had big problems. But it's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem wasn't just how they behaved, but it was what they believed. And so Paul, right in chapter 1, is going to tell them about the cross and what that means for them and their everyday living and church. And as he gets to the end, he's going to talk about the resurrection and what that means and why it's important for them and their church. So he's just concluded, if if we were reading the whole thing, when you look at chapter 15, you can kind of scan verses 1-1 all the way through 11. And Paul's just basically saying, and setting up his argument. He's saying, look, the resurrection is essential. It's an essential part of Christianity. When we talk about the gospel, it has to have the resurrection in it. And in doing this, he's answering our question. Paul is going to answer our question. Why does it matter? What's the big deal about the resurrection? And he does it in a kind of a weird way. His strategy is, is to note or list the hypothetical consequences of not believing in the resurrection. So as to ultimately affirm the importance of hoping in Christ. Basically, it's why everyone must hope in the resurrection, but he does it kind of backwards. He doesn't say, here's three reasons why you should trust in the resurrection. He does it in a different way. He's saying, if you don't believe in the resurrection, here's what's true. So, we're answering the simple question, what if if Christ had not been raised? What difference does it make? Why does it matter that Jesus actually rose from the grave? And particularly, we're going to notice these three consequences of Jesus not rising from the dead. So this is going to be different, but this is the way Paul does it. And here we try to explain the way that the Bible presents things. So Follow along with me. I want to show you these three consequences. The first one is that if there were no resurrection, the gospel would be empty. If there were no resurrection, the gospel would be empty. Look at verses 12 and 13. Now, if Christ is proclaimed, as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, I'm going to ask you to think with me for a moment, because I want you to get what this guy is writing. The first time I read through this passage, I didn't really understand it, because there's a lot of ifs and buts and that kind of thing. I want to just give you an overview of what Paul's talking about, so that you can see this in the Bible for yourself. Here, in just these first two verses, Paul's saying, look, the resurrection actually happened, and it's an essential part of the gospel. It's the substance. It's... It's the the source of its power. This is the foundation of Christianity. And there's a conflict, though, that's going on. There's a conflict going on between what Paul preaches and what these people believe. Paul preaches that the resurrection is true, and that because of that, other people who believe in Jesus will also one day rise from the dead. Look at uh, verses 3 and 4 in chapter 15. You'll notice this. Paul says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. Here it is. First importance, most important thing, that Christ died for our sins, and in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. So he's saying, look, the most important thing I am going to tell you is that Jesus died, that he was buried, For sin, and that he rose again. Now, they understand that part, but what they didn't understand is that this would have an effect on them if they believed in him. An effect that transcended or went beyond this life. It wasn't just hopeful, optimistic thinking, but like if they believed in this, they too would one day rise again from the dead. That's what he wants them to understand. See, they're coming from a a Greco-Roman thought process in which they believed in the immortality of the soul. I mean, if you've ever seen movies that portray Greek or Roman culture, they had this idea that they would exist forever. That they knew that. But what you don't probably think of sometimes is that they thought that they would only exist on a spiritual plane. They didn't think that they would actually have a body. They couldn't conceive of somebody actually coming back from the dead like with their own body. Actually, the way that it's stated in like the original language... This is a translation from from the Greek. When we say raised from the dead, you need to understand that in our culture as Americans, we typically think of death as like a state of being. But the, the person listening to this in the first century would have not thought of a state of being, but they would have thought of like dead bodies, rotting corpses. Like how could somebody come back to life? And it was even more impossible for Romans especially because the way that they buried people, And that century was cremation. Burial for Greek and Roman peoples didn't become popular until the second century. So they can't imagine how somebody's body could just cease to exist and become a pile of ashes and then all of a sudden be reconstituted into a living person. And Paul needs to fix their thinking. So Paul wants them to understand that they too can also rise from the dead and he uses some careful logic I know that it's been a while since you've been in school and thought through formal logic, but to make this simple, I want to give you a hypothetical. All right, I want to give you an example of how Paul is making his case so that you can understand how this text is written, and then we'll get into the rest of it, okay? Now, to help you get Paul's argument, here's the example that I would give you. Let's say that you and me get into an argument, all right? You believe that America won the Revolutionary War. Now, for those of you, again, it's been a long time, 1776 Declaration of Independence, you know, like we've got our independence from Great Britain. I only say that because I read a report the other day that when people were asked about what the Revolutionary War was about, like only 30% of the people got the answer right. So just in case, just a refresher for everybody that's here. This was the war that supposedly that you think, or should think, gave us as Americans our independence from British rule. And that I wrongly think did not happen. Now here's my argument. I'm going to say that you weren't there. The people who taught you history weren't there. They didn't see that we won the war. There's no confirmed video footage. There's no photographs from that era. There was no Revolutionary War. That's what I would argue. But here's how you could argue back. If you wanted to convince me that I was wrong, you could say something like this. And this is how Paul's argument. You could say... Let's assume that America lost the war for independence. If that's true, then you're not an American citizen. And if you're not an American citizen, the Constitution is worthless. Voting and taxes don't do anything. The founding fathers and all of your history teachers are liars, and you're still under British rule. Does that make sense? You would be showing me at that point, like, of course we won the Revolutionary War because all these things are true. In a similar way, Paul is showing that such a ridiculous claim is wrong by showing all the supposed consequences that would be true of thinking in that wrong way. Here, Paul argues for the significance of the resurrection by showing the consequences of not believing in it. So if you don't believe in the resurrection, these things are true. The logic's simple. Now, here's the first consequence, then. If you don't believe, if Christ has not been raised, look at verse 14. Here's the, here it is. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now, preaching here, by the way, is the word that denoted the activity of an official herald of the king. I mean, think back to like, hear ye, hear ye kind of stuff. This was somebody who had a a capacity to speak for the king himself. Think less journalist and more like official press secretary. So when you see the word preaching in the Bible, it's not referring to like a preacher in a church just yelling. Uh, most, most people think that's what preaching is. If that's what, preaching is actually not that. It is what Jesus' followers do. is when they officially represent him by telling the truth to other people. So yeah, pastors preach, but also people preach, believe it or not. Like when they actually tell people that Jesus died for their sin and that he rose again. Like that is preaching. Paul is saying that if Christ is not raised, preaching is in vain, empty, hollow. It lacks substance. It doesn't do anything. Not only that, but he says your faith, not just what you say, but also what you believe is in vain. Belief, dependence upon this message, is vain, it's empty, it's worthless, it doesn't do anything. It's like. A water gun with no water, a coffee pot with no coffee, a bank account with no money, a car with no gas, a flashlight with no batteries, it's useless, it's impractical. So, what does this mean for us today? If there's no resurrection, the mission of the church through the centuries is empty, useless, and ungrounded as believing in the Easter Bunny. What I want you to get is that the connection between Jesus' resurrection and its effect upon those who believe is so integral to the proclamation of and response to the gospel that it provides zero, zero value if it's not true. Not only do I need a different job, but you need a different Sunday hobby. If Christ is not raised, I'm wasting my life as a preacher, you're wasting your life as a church member trying to accomplish this work of gospel proclamation with others. Hoping in Jesus apart from the resurrection is on par with hoping in the greatest fairy tales and psychological nonsense of history. We may as well just say, believe in your heart, follow your dreams, trust yourself, look to your horoscope. I mean, I know it sounds a little ridiculous, but for the kids, we might as well believe in fairies and leprechauns if Christ is not raised from the dead. For those of you who are here and you just kind of pretend to be a Christian, you come to get people off your back. You go through the Christian motions from time to time. Look, I want you to know that this could be good news for you. You can stop pretending and you can stop feeling guilty about not coming to church anymore if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. And if you're here today and you're just straight up like, no, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't intend to, hey, good news for you. You can move along on your spiritual journey from Jesus to something else or somewhere else because there's nothing to see here. This is empty. This is worthless. If Christ is not raised. It's a pretty serious consequence. But it's not the only one. If there were no resurrection, not only would the gospel be empty, but the apostles would be liars. That's what we see in verses 15 and 16. If there were no resurrection, the apostles would be liars. Look at verse 15. We are even found, this is Paul's argument, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Now let me pause here for a second. I want you to notice something as you're reading this. Paul has turned the argument up a notch. (laughs) I mean, at this point, not only is the Christian message empty but it's errant, it's deceitful, it's blatantly untrue. When he says, we, are misrepresenting God, who's he talking about? Well, when you're reading in the context, we, he's put himself in the group of the apostles. You see that back in the previous paragraph. The apostles themselves would be liars. In our translation here, it says, misrepresenting God. But the idea is literally that of a false witness, someone who's pretended to see something, but really didn't. We call this in our own society, perjury. You say, what's the big deal if the apostles got it wrong? Well, look, you need to understand something. I know that there may be churches around where there's a guy who claims to be an apostle. I want you to know that according to the Bible, there are no apostles around because an apostle had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ, and you know what they did? Like They were the guys that God used through the Holy Spirit to write the Bible. So here's the deal. If the apostles are lying, the New Testament is lying. You know what I'm saying? Are you following the logic? Because, why? Because the New Testament is about this. It testifies about God or against God, depending on your translation, that he did something that he actually didn't do. That's just like the basic of a lie. Christ didn't raise from the dead. They said that he did when God didn't. And the dangerous thing about this is that if this is true, Christianity has been malicious from the very start. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, couldn't they have just been mistaken about Jesus' resurrection? I mean, perjury, that's a pretty serious charge. Look, if there were no resurrection, the apostles lied. There is no such thing as an innocent mistake. Hear me out. It is impossible for them to be innocently mistaken about Jesus' resurrection. This would have been one of the greatest conspiracies in all of history. Now, let's think for a second. Secular scholars, I'm talking like people who get paid money to teach classes and research things, have been trying to explain the empty tomb of Jesus For hundreds of years now. Basically, everybody that knows anything about history believes that Jesus died. Except for the Muslims. The Muslims are the only major group of people that do not believe that Jesus actually died. They think it was fake. But everybody else believes it. But here's the deal, what people can't accept. They cannot accept that he rose from the dead. But they've got a problem because... These liberal scholars, these people who don't believe, they don't want to say that the apostles were lying. Well, you know what they like to say? They like to say, well, you know know what? They were very well-meaning individuals, but they were just confused about the resurrection. The popular theories are these, and this is just what, again, if you step into a normal college classroom and you ask uh, a history professor about the resurrection of Jesus, these are the three explanations you'll get. One, well, the disciples thought that Jesus died Oh, he didn't actually die, but he, they thought he died, but he just passed out. It's called the swoon theory. He passed out from all the pain on the cross. They assumed that he was dead. And then when he came back, well, obviously they, they thought he was alive again. The second theory that they would give you is that they went to the wrong tomb. I'm not kidding. <laughs> they really believe that. They'll say that the guys just didn't really know where they went. And then they went to the wrong tomb. And, that's, uh, and the whole Christian movement was founded on the fact that somebody went to the wrong place at the wrong time. Or the third one, and this one's the most creative to me. The disciples and the apostles were so sad that they hallucinated the resurrection. Now, I I want you to know, if you're not thinking through the implications of this, it's impossible for them to be confused. Follow me here. It is absolutely impossible. I mean, just consider the swoon theory for a second. There is no surviving a spear to the heart. All right, I don't really have anything else to say. Like, if, you, if you're working from the biblical text and you're trusting that, you, just, you don't come back from that. And secondly, what about the wrong tomb? Have you ever thought about the fact that he was buried in the family tomb of a famous public figure? That's why we, even when we read the text today, notice that it said Joseph of Arimathea. This is one of the most popular teachers of the time. He actually had to pay somebody to carve this tomb out into a rock. I mean, like, and then on top of that, I just noticed reading it this morning, I've never seen this before, but it says that the women saw them put Jesus in the tomb. Like, you don't get that wrong. I mean, for those of you who have had a loved one die, and you go and see their tombstone, it's not like you just forget how to get there. I mean, that's impossible. Furthermore, I would say that the Romans, to squash this Christian movement, at any time, if they look, just got it wrong and they were all mistaken and they kept going to the wrong tomb and thinking it was empty, they could have produced a body and said, look, you don't have, your Messiah is dead. But the Romans could never do that. The third thing is that there's mass hallucination. Look, I, I get the fact that they maybe could have drank too much wine and been sad and depressed, but it wasn't just them. I mean, it was hundreds of people, according to eyewitness accounts, that actually saw him. Now, it's one thing for me to dream something off the wall and crazy. But when somebody else dreams the same thing, it's kind of weird. And then when you start adding hundreds of people to the mix, that doesn't happen. I mean, he just said back up in verse 7, that he appeared to James... And to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Oh, excuse me, look at verse 6. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, and some who have fallen asleep. Like, 500 people? All hallucinated? The same thing? It doesn't happen that way. Now, here's the deal. We're only left with one option. There's no way that these men were confused. If we're not going to believe the testimony that Jesus was raised from the dead... We have to believe that a group of panicked disciples who have shown a strong measure of incompetence throughout the Gospels have engineered a complex operation to overcome the Roman guards at the tomb. They stole the body, they kept it concealed, and they did all of this, being willing to die for it years later. you ever noticed that? To me, that's one of the strongest evidences of the resurrection is the fact that these men were moronic cowards before the resurrection And then afterward, they are indomitable, even being willing to be crucified for their faith. Paul tells us here, or encourages us to ask, what's more likely? Is it more likely that Jesus actually rose from the dead and that the apostles are telling the truth, or is it more likely that they were just deceiving everybody from the very start? I want you to understand, this is a huge deal. You think, all right, well, some guys lied. It's not a big deal. Look, it's a big deal. Robert Ingersoll, he was one of the great agnostics of the 19th century. And um, he was a historic hater of Christianity. He was a lawyer. And so he just, he really, he didn't like the way that the church had treated his dad. And so he took his legal rage out on the church. Listen to his comment that he made about perjury. He says, Perjury is one of the basest and meanest of crimes. What can it do? Perjury can change the common air that we breathe into the acts of an executioner. Perjury can change the common air that we breathe into the acts of an executioner. You get that? When somebody's standing on a witness stand and they testify something wrongly about someone else, it's possible that someone could die for that testimony. You understand that this literally happened for Christians. They were literally killed because of the testimony, the encouragement of the message of the apostles. It wasn't they just told some innocent white lies. They told innocent white lies, and they encouraged people to die gruesome deaths because of it. Think of all the sacrifice, the labor, the martyrdom sparked by the dishonesty of the leaders of the Christian movement if Christ has not been raised from the dead. So if there were no resurrection, the gospel would be empty, the apostles would be liars, and then finally, the penalty of sin would remain. Look at verses 17 to 19. Paul's talking about the penalty of sin remaining. Look, he says, if Christ has not been raised, there's is his argument, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, you need to know something, that the removal of sin's penalty, like the penalty that we got for sinning, hinged upon the resurrection of Jesus. Paul strengthens his argument. Notice, your faith is futile. He just said something similar, right? He just said, your faith is empty. Here he says, your faith is futile. He's building upon a previous argument, and he simply, the first time, is talking about their faith being hollow or lacking substance. Here the word futile more focuses on its ineffectiveness. I'll give it to you this way. If vanity or empty focuses on the absence of batteries or the absence of an engine or the absence of water in a water gun or the absence of coffee in a coffee pot, this word focuses more on the fact that the flashlight can't provide light, the car won't move, the water gun won't shoot, the check can't pay. You get the idea? It's more on the result. So, what is it that our faith will not do if Christ has not been raised? Here it is, as plain as I can say it. The penalty of sin, or the curse of sin, whatever you want to say, still remains. This is the worst of all the hypothetical consequences of there being no resurrection. And there are two expressions of the penalty of sin that I want to bring to your mind. The first is positional, the other is practical. The positional one here is this little phrase you are still in your sins. Do you understand that if God really does exist, that He is holy and that He hates disobedience, and that He has tied punishment or a penalty to that disobedience, and we call that the curse of sin? So like, when someone does something wrong, they have to pay for it? So when we sin against holy God, we have to pay for it, and you know what the price that He has imposed upon sin is? According to Romans 6.23, it's death. That's the penalty. That's the penalty that God has given us. So when we break the law, we are in sin. We are under condemnation. That's what it means to be in sin. So either you're here today. You're either in sin or you're out of sin. You're either under God's condemnation because you have disobeyed Him and you've broken His law, or things are right between you and Him. And He's saying, look, if you say that Christ has it raised from the dead, you are still in sin. Things are not right between you and God. So then, where does the resurrection fit? Romans 4.25 explains this very well. Just listen, don't turn there. You can write it down. Romans 4.25 tells us, Jesus our Lord was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. When we say that Jesus died, paying the penalty for sin, that's true. But notice what Paul says in Romans 4. He was raised for our justification. Now, that's a big word. It just simply means to be made right. So when he was raised, it showed that we are right with God. The resurrection secured our justification insofar as it provided the proof that God had accepted the sacrifice of his son on our behalf. Let me give you this picture. After a criminal does time in jail, and he fully satisfies the sentence, what kind of claim does the law have on him? None. Has no more claim on him. He walks out free. So in a similar way, Jesus Christ, He came to pay the penalty for our sins. And that was an infinite sentence. But He must have satisfied it totally, because on Easter Sunday, He walked out free. See, what I want you to understand is that the resurrection, the big deal, is that it was God's way of stamping, paid in full, right across history, so that nobody can miss it. See, if He's still in the tomb today, He's still paying for our sin. We don't know that the transaction's been completed he's either not finished paying for it or he couldn't pay for it that's the positional reality of where we are today like all right we're still stuck with the sin problem not only positionally but practically verse 18 then those who have fallen asleep in christ have perished here's the bigger deal in light of that position believers now are expecting deliverance from death right that's what we hope we hope that when we die we will be risen again and that we will be able to live forever but those who have placed their hope in Christ, if Christ is not red, they've been destroyed. I like the imagery. Notice that he says, those who have fallen asleep in Christ. I love how he presents death for the Christian as sleep. Why, why sleep? Because sleep is something you wake up from. Sleep is something that's not full, It's not final. And he's saying this beautiful promise about us being able to wake up from death one day doesn't exist and those who have believed in Christ have perished. Just as Jesus' resurrection proved Jesus fully and finally paid the penalty, so also the bodily resurrection of believers will one day prove that the penalty has been paid. Look, if Jesus has not been raised, we're dead men walking. You've heard that phrase before? Dead men walking? Prior to the 1960s when guards in prisons would lead a condemned man down the prison hallway, they would cry out, dead man walking, dead man walking here. The origin of the phrase is debated. People don't know where it came from. Some have suggested that it was used to warn other staff or prisoners that there was somebody who could potentially be violent because he's got nothing to lose. But regardless of the origin of the statement, everyone in the prison system knows the symbolism. It's clear. The condemned prisoner, in the eyes of the law, was dead already. That's our state apart from Jesus' resurrection. That's where we stand today. We deal with the guilt of sin now and the, the ways that we can. not we, we try to battle against it. We try to fix it. But what I want you to understand that if Christ is not raised, no amount of reform, no church attendance, no philanthropy, no good deeds, no pleasure-seeking can ever cover up the guilt of sin. This text makes it clear that we will perish in eternity, forever destined to try to satisfy God's wrath on our own if Christ is not raised. And then notice how he summarizes this. This is probably one of the most moving things that you'll see in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Notice that. This is Paul's grand conclusion. If believing in Christ is only some kind of encouragement for this life alone, if it cannot conquer the practical penalty of sin, we are the most pitiable people on the planet. Think about it. I mean, it's an all or nothing If this is not true, we chase after empty fairy tales. Millions have been deceived by the machinations of a handful of men from the first century. We still are coping with the guilt of our sin. We're still going to end up suffering destruction when we die, regardless of what we do. That's bad news. Why live for Jesus, endure persecution, give up time and resources for the gospel, pray and read our Bibles, blow our weekends at church? Why waste our time with Christianity if Jesus isn't raised from the dead? This is why Paul will later say in verse 32, the same chapter, you've heard this before, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I agree with that. I agree with that 100%. If Jesus is just another dead religious figure, well, let's drop this thing. Let's just live for the now. You know, some people think that pastors just like read the Bible and they automatically understand it. <laughs> I think I've already admitted to you that when I first started reading this text, I I was kind of struggling to get the connections, like it was just, it seemed pretty complex. But I wanted to get it. I mean, obviously, I don't want to be a hypocrite here on Sunday. I, I want to get it for myself before I give it to you. And so, I had spent some time, obviously, on Monday and Tuesday, just really diving in and I was getting a better picture of it. But it was impossible for me to to feel the text without first knowing the text. And so, having thought on the text for the first few days, I woke up on Thursday morning in a panic because I had been thinking about this so much that it actually came to my mind like, what if? <laughs> what if right now, like like this day, I wake up knowing everything that I know about Jesus and what He did, and what if He really is still dead? What if they really did find His tomb? What if they they really did find like this supposed bone box or they, they know that He's dead? Like, He's not alive. I mean, like, I looked at the day in fear. Like, this is all I've got. I'm not guaranteed anything. Like, eternities, like in view. I mean, it was just depressing. And I think that's the feeling that Paul wants us to get here. And that's why I haven't tried to counter or relieve any of the tension. Because Paul wants you to feel, all right, what's at stake here? Everything's at stake. Apostles are liars penalty of sin remains the gospel is useless but with that in mind let's look at one more verse look at verse 20 you don't even need to read very far but in fact christ has been raised from the dead Now we're ready for the key of grasping the significance of Easter. And that is the beauty and the power of the resurrection. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead since it is true. In light of what we've learned, what else is true? If Christ has been raised from the dead, what are the consequences of that? Well, since Jesus is raised from the dead, strictly speaking, the gospel is not powerless since jesus has been raised from the dead the apostles were not liars since jesus has been raised from the dead the penalty of sin does not remain now that's negatively let's state it positively in other words because christ is raised from the dead the gospel is powerful the apostles are trustworthy the penalty of sin has been pardoned for all who believe and that is good news do you see the impact of this truth for you today Look, if you're here today and you've been faking the whole Christian thing or you're not a Christian at all, I, I want you to see that Christianity, the gospel, is an all or nothing deal. It's all or nothing. Is isn't just you can borrow from some of the moral sayings of Jesus and have a better life. It doesn't work that way. You're either all in or you're all out. And I'm advising that you get all in. Because this is the best promise in all the world. If you can be conclusive, That Jesus didn't rise from the dead for your own good. This is what I have to tell you if this text is true. Get away from this place as soon as possible. Don't waste another second of your life with these people or this book or these kinds of places of worship. Just move on if you can be sure. But if you think there is any possibility, That Jesus actually rose from the dead. If you ever feel that guilt of sin in your heart and you yearn for a remedy. If you know the truth but have postponed placing your faith in Jesus. Depend on him today. Simply confess your need to the living Lord Jesus. Rely on him for forgiveness for sin. Look, Practically speaking, if you want to talk to someone, any of our church members here would be happy to answer your questions about the gospel. If you'd rather contemplate the decision and trust in Christ privately, that's fine too. I encourage you to do something, practically speaking. When you leave, get one of the books that we're offering to you. Take one of these Bibles and read it. The book that we've provided is just going to give you some helpful verses in the Bible that help make the Gospel clear. That's your action item today. If you think that this could be true, I would encourage you to go down that road or do both. You could read a book and get together with one of our church members, and we could talk to you more about it. But this is a gathering of believers primarily, and so if you're here today and you're a Christian, I want you to know just basically that the resurrection it gives us hope. We're not to be pitied, but envied. <laughs> In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter how tough this life is right now or what kind of trials you endure or how hard it is to follow Jesus. I know those things are painful, but when you remember that you've believed in the life-changing good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for sin, you can rejoice. You can rejoice this week. I mean, it's good news for you, my friends, that the gospel is powerful enough for your sin because I know that some of us in here have, even after we've been saved, blown it royally. Royally. And isn't it nice to remember Jesus' resurrection and to have, like, the proof of purchase, if you will, of your own sin being forgiven? It's remedied, it's taken care of. I don't care what you've done, where you've been. You can know empty tomb equals my forgiveness. You can be truthful, confident in the gospel. Sometimes you're scared of sharing the truth. Ever feel fearful about communicating your faith to other people? Listen, you've got something that nobody else can offer. This is what makes the Christian message so unique. Every other system out there, they follow dead men. Dead men. Jesus is alive. This this should instill you with a measure of confidence that you have something unique to offer. You're bringing something unique to the conversation. This should embolden you in your witness to other people. This is life-changing, no, excuse me, eternity-changing truth. If Christ is raised. And then lastly, we can rejoice. We can rejoice because we're no longer under the penalty of sin. I was talking with a group of our people on Wednesday night a few weeks ago. telling We were talking about complaining and what that looks like and how it shouldn't happen. And I told them about a, an older mentor of mine who gave me these words and I thought it was so good. He said, Justin, you should never complain because anything above hell is grace. <laughs> anything above hell is grace. Now when you realize that you deserve the everlasting wrath of God and then you subsequently realize that You don't deserve it anymore because of what Christ did. That's a joy-giving reality. Listen, I'm not trying to dismiss the acute problems of our day and the things that you suffer with on a day-to-day basis, but I want you to know, Christian, that God intends for you to actually have joy in this life on the basis of the reality of the resurrection. Like, when you're having a bad day, you don't just need a TV show or chocolate. or I mean, that's the way the world is going to handle its problems. The way that you can actually handle your problems is, whoo, this is above hell. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the penalty of sin has been satisfied. Things are right between me and God. That is how we comfort one another. That is how we make it through. This is the way that Christians live in this sin-cursed life. So in light of that, since Christ is raised, I don't know of any better way for us to close out our service than with a song of praise and adoration for our risen Christ.